Hi everybody, I'm Peter Travers. This is Popcorn, where we tell you what's happening at the movies. And we have a movie now called All Is True. It is the story of William Shakespeare in his later years. It stars my friend here, Kenneth Branagh, who also directed it and did God knows what else <laughs> on this one. You know, Ken, I think it's kind of amazing. We were talking a little bit before about when I first encountered you, which was you playing uh, Henry V mm -hmm. on screen which you directed as well as starred in. Oscar nominations for both things. This was a Henry who was just filled with youth and vigor and was gonna take on the world. And everything in it was um, this fresh, vigorous approach to what Shakespeare is. And now you are playing Shakespeare himself in his later years. Yes. How does that make you feel? Uh, unusual. Unusual. <laughs> unusual, but also very privileged because the, in a way, you know, Henry V was a was an amazing opportunity to have as a, a young actor and a sort of um, virgin filmmaker, and really was only possible because there were lots of other equally sort of adventurous maverick figures in terms of the producers and and all sorts of other people who were taking a chance on me. I remember talking to the late, great Sam Goldwyn Jr. Uh, when we were releasing that film in America, saying, can I please, 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 uh, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm 28, I'm nobody and nothing, but can, please, can I make two requests? On the poster, please, sir, could you include two names? Uh, one is Judy Dench, uh, who I promise you people will know about <laughs> soon. They will know about her. Uh, and the other one, please, is William Shakespeare, uh, without whom uh, none of us would be here. Um, what? Credit the writer? Well, just for at least additional dialogue anyway. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was, it, he was just concerned about what was going to get people into the theatre, so I had no problem listening to a smart man who knew his, who knew his market. But um, I suppose um, this end of things, I, I, I keep sort of saying the same thank yous to people like Judy Dench, who've stuck with me through a journey through Shakespeare. How, and yeah, Shakespeare many himself. things have you done with her? I mean, that's we, we probably worked about uh, together about 11 times, and uh, she's directed me a couple of times, and I've directed her. I've always learned from her. And a couple of years ago, we did Shakespeare's play The Winter's Tale, which was really a prelude to making this film all is true, because she played uh, Paulina, a woman who speaks truth to power, and she puts my character in that play, Leontes, a man who makes a stupid mistake and loses a child as a result. She puts him to the test, puts him to the sword, and that sort of tense relationship became a sort of starting point for Ben Elton thinking about how might Anne Hathaway and William Shakespeare's relationship be after 20 years of him being away as the most famous poet of the age and, and coming back to face the family. That's the, the whole crux of the story. He's mm. got this wife who he basically has neglected she painfully, mm -hmm. and two daughters, mm -hmm. and a, a dead son, yes, you know, indeed. whose memory he's dealing with. But I always hear we know nothing about what really happened in terms of what was going on in Shakespeare's life. So mm -hmm. how does this come about that you get to play him at, in 1613 when he's basically retired after the old Globe Theatre burns down, he's going home. Well, Ben Elton and I looked at the existing facts, the facts such as we knew them that appear in the public record office, and so you'll find that on a, on a day in, in June of 1614, a man called John Lane stood up in the church, Holy Trinity Church in Stratford, and he called Shakespeare's daughter a whore, and he said she had gonorrhea, and that she was uh, uh, sleeping with a, with a man who was not her husband. This is in public record, quite clear, mm -hmm. it, everybody knew about it, created a sensation, because Shakespeare was a returning celebrity and in the case of, of someone so creatively um, prolific 
to come back to a tiny town um, uh, and, and a long way from London and, and after 37 plays and a great success, work out what to do even, let alone what to say to uh, a wife and daughters who, as you say, have been neglected and who have, if you think of it in terms of the plays that he wrote, are going to have plenty to say about what he might or might not have done or said. And in his terms, he's got to, he's got to come to terms with how that sits, you know, the, 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 this idea of what it's like for a genius to deal with ordinary life was also in the, in the core of what we were trying to look at. Ben Elton, who did this, uh, works on in a very humorous way. Yes, yes, but, yes, yeah. But that's it. He's coming up and people are saying, who the hell are you, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, what, again, one of the fascinating things about Shakespeare is how elusive he is. You know, there are probably about 25 facts about him in the public record of his places he was, things that happened during the course of his life. But many people find it hard to join the idea of uh, the fellow we present, who may or may not have gone to grammar school, comes from a relatively lower class scenario in a small country town, and goes off into the world and can write plays about Rome and Egypt and, and Italy and, 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 and politics and religion, and do so without having had the classical education, mm-hmm. without being, as it were, the classical idea of genius, Lord Byron, mad, bad, and dangerous to know, <laughs> living a glamorous life of public scandal, and, 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 and that sounds great. Doesn't, yeah. Yes, yes, I'd buy some of that. But Shakespeare seems to go, perhaps, you know, exemplify what Flaubert called when he described the, the artistic life and said, you need to be bourgeois in your private life and revolutionary in your creative life. And you might argue that about Shakespeare. But, but that, that, that sort of contradiction or tension between the ordinary man and the man capable of extraordinary creative output um, for me, is so touching, so poignant, so Shakespearean, because he, he often, in his own plays, he pulls the rug from under the feet of grandiloquent people, um, saying, you know what, in the end, you're all going to need company, you're all going to need help at the end of your life, you're all going to require to laugh, you're all, you, you're going to need a support that comes from very simple um, contact with human beings. It isn't all about being you know, some grand queen or king, even if he writes very well about them. His genius, I think, is writing about the nitty gritty. It's of always the high and low. Yes. <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of amazing that in terms of film, television, whatever, we don't really get that much of him. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. really don't. So you're, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, okay, here he is, the, he's coming home, the hero's coming home, and nobody really wants him there. Yes, yeah. Everybody's wife says, really? You yeah. Know? And also that they were illiterate. Basically, mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. just weren't taught. Yes, absolutely. So, so it allowed Ben Elton, I think, to give quite a modern voice in the film to women who had not been listened to, and it didn't matter to them that their father, even then, was lauded as the as the poet of the age. His, uh, you know, clear and present responsibility as a a parent and as a husband was something that they they challenge, and um, and they challenge indeed as most families experience even with the most high achieving mother or father out there in the world being spectacular come back to your own you know kitchen table and you're just a member of that family and people are are unimpressed and the tension that you know accrues is important one of the things i i admire about shakespeare is that um he does come back to stratford he does he does he does fess up you know he 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 um and they stay married, and we investigate and explore the idea of what, what, what it meant when, and this is true in, in Shakespeare's will, 
he left his wife uh, his second best bed. And many people regard this as a great slight or a snub or an affront. We take a different view that it might have, there might actually be a layer of meaning in that that suggests perhaps it's, a, it's more than a friendly gesture, it might even be a loving gesture. The title was originally the title of Henry VIII? Correct, yeah. yeah. It was an alternative title for what we believe was his, his last play because it was the play that indeed, again, f- absolute fact, that, uh, that, that resulted at the end of Act 1, Scene 4, and ju- June 29th, 1613. They, uh, it was a play of pomp and pageantry. They fired off a cannon and a spark went into the thatched roof of the Globe Theatre and up it went, burnt entirely to the ground. Only one person suffered an injury. It was written about in the local... Uh, uh, press as it were of the time such as it was and this was somebody whose who's bottom had been burnt getting out cause of much hilarity but two and a half thousand or three and a half thousand depending on what you believe got out but, but the theatre was ruined and uh, a title that Shakespeare himself used regularly which was one of irony all is true Who, who's to say how Shakespeare how accurate he could be about what happened backstage at the life of Henry VIII and other titles of his much should do about nothing as you like it twelfth night or what you will they offer up this sort of Shakespearean shrug he looks at you and he sort of he teases you and he dares you what do you think what do you think Peter <laughs> watch the film you tell me what you think it's all fine it's all good am I a fascist am I a communist do I hate women do I love women am I you know do I like families do I not like them it's a constant sort of provocation teasing teasing it's a nice little teasing yeah, isn't it, yeah, it, isn't yeah. it? what was it the first your for you Belfast boy what was your first encounter with Shakespeare? Uh, bizarrely, actually, uh, memorably, it was on television, a variety show, circa 1967, and it was uh, Peter Sellers impersonating Laurence Olivier as Richard III reciting the lyrics from the Beatles song, A Hard Day's Night. <laughs> now, it couldn't have been... I want to see that now. <laughs> well, he's bent over and he goes, it's been a hard day's night and I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. And, it, <laughs> and he looks like Salvador Dali's uh, image of Laurence Olivier as Richard III. And I remember saying to my dad, what the heck is that? And him sort of explaining that it was like three layers of reference to this dead playwright 400 years 400 years ago, but there was the beginning scratching at the surface of, wow, this guy gets into our lives somewhere, doesn't he? And then we, at school we were made to read Shakespeare aloud. It was the most painful process. I couldn't understand a word of it. It was meaningless to me. And then I went to see a production of Romeo and Juliet with a thousand other kids, a matinee that was wild. I mean, we were wild. And the play starts with a fight. We saw sparks coming away from the blades, and we were in. We were definitely in, and then this vision walked on as Juliet, and I think I passed through puberty across the length of that performance. I'm going to do this, because <laughs> we, you've done so much of Shakespeare, you've done so much of classics, what we call classics, that it seems to people when they just hear your name that you were to the manner born, mm. that they anointed you the new Laurence Olivier immediately. And I think... The idea that you came to it that way, yeah. like we all would, what, what when we're growing up, when we're approaching puberty or whatever, gets us. Mm-hmm. And I always find when I talk to people about it, puberty is a major point of when you start to attach yourself to different things. People remember the movie they saw during that period. I agree, absolutely. In it. And I found, I've talked to a lot of sort of fellow artists who... Uh, particularly people in the theatre, but in film as well, you're constantly remaking the things that made a profound impact on you through your teens. Um, 
I, I'll never forget the experience of creeping into the back of the Reading Film Theatre circa, you'll tell me the time, date, 75, 76. I got in the back because it was like an 18 certificate. I was 15 or something to see Dog Day Afternoon. And I, I, I couldn't believe that movies or acting or films could be anything like this. I, I just remember being wrapped because it was an, a, a great heist movie. I remember thinking, God, Charles Durning, it was just, it was so real. Him outside on the street trying to make Al Pacino come out of that bank that he was holding up. And then, and then the bizarre nature of a conversation between Al Pacino and Michael Sarazin, where Pacino tells him he's robbed the bank in order to pay for the sex change operation. This is 1975 mm -hmm. that Michael Sarazin's character is happening. It was on the streets of New York, filmed in a, I didn't know it then, but filmed in a very sort of cinema verite way, very much influenced by French New Wave and everything. Lumet at his finest, Pacino at his finest, John Cazales at his finest. And all the way through to the most riveting finale as they get in that van to get to the plane, they're going to make it, they're going to make it, of course. Well, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> uh, b b something happens. But, I mean, if I was ever going to be converted to the idea of the power of cinema, power of performance, power of directing, the, incre the vibrancy of New York City, the, the kind of, the, the sort of revolutionary nature of a, a medium like that, it was then in the dark. And, uh, you know, I, in the suburbs. I'm in the suburbs, just a guy <laughs> in the suburbs, like a trillion other men and women all over the world finding their way to a movie or a play or whatever. But that experience, along with Shakespeare at the same time, that was blowing my mind. How do you finally get that? How do you make that move? Go knocking on the door and saying, you know, it's me. Oh, I'm, I'm going to play off. Ignorance is bliss. It's Ignorance is bliss, as they said. Was it Wordsworth said about the French Revolution? Uh, bliss was it. Uh, bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. And so, uh, I think you know the great mystique about people. Uh, some people like me or people involved with Shakespeare is that somehow we have great intellectual or cerebral qualities. Um, uh, uh, much much simpler than that. I I was bowled over in the case of Henry V by an amazing story, and then I met somebody who was equally passionate about bringing it to the screen, a maverick producer, two maverick producers, and somehow we got it together at a time when the British film industry was um, not really firing on all cylinders by, by any means, and we just didn't know how difficult it was, and we didn't know that the endless false starts we had, we didn't know with two weeks to go when a very distinguished producer said to me, this film will collapse within one week, or it would be one week before, or one week after principal photography uh, begins and your film career will be destroyed. It's so encouraging. <laughs> I said, yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so it's we probably all over for you. <laughs> Wait a minute, I don't have a career. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. There's nothing to, to destroy. You don't have to risk. Well, part, part <laughs> yeah. of that was it. There's nothing to destroy. Think, well, I, I didn't Go even, ahead, destroy. I, I don't even know what that means. Um, so uh, we, It doesn't look at you. That movie is fresh today. If any, You should look at it if you haven't seen it yet. And of course, I always remember you dragging Christian Bale across the battle. Oh my goodness me. He wasn't the Christian Bale we know of now. We're talking what was he, nine or ten? No, no, no. He was a bit older. He had just had his amazing debut in Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun, one of the greatest uh -huh. child performances in the history of cinema, I think. So he was probably 14. We were just talking a little while ago about the impact in adolescence of um, artistic experience or, or just life experience. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing Christian Bale sat behind Judy Dench as she, she tells the brilliant story, which she did wonderfully, of, of Mistress Quickly describing the death of Falstaff. And uh, during that, I saw, I saw a kid 
witness uh, a great artist doing a beautiful piece of work and I saw him absolutely transfixed. I felt as though I saw Christian go from boy to man as an artist in that single take. Wow. It's a great thing to watch. But look at, look at your career as a thing. We're talking about the Shakespeare that you've done, you know, five or six films that you've mm-hmm, done. Is mm-hmm. this the sixth one? This, uh, yeah, I think this, yeah. Actually, yeah, sort of, this is the seventh that isn't a play, is it? But, were? Ken, you will turn around and you'll direct Thor. You'll be your part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU, yeah. to do that. You'll then say, you know what, I'm going to do Cinderella, you know? And next I'm going to act and direct in in Murder on the Orient Express. Is that something you set out to do so that you're never this one thing? I love going to the movies and I love uh, surprise. I I watch a vast and wide range of movies and and I like to push myself as well. So when I made Thor, for instance, it was a big. Marvel took a big chance on me. It was a big sideways move uh, in in my career and a big risk, really, because um, you know I was making a lot of films uh, that were quite obscure, but with small audiences, but things that were important to me. So it was a big thing for Kevin Feige to take a punt on me, and for me, it was a big adventure to go into that world. But I knew that I probably had something different to offer. Um, and in the case of that first Thor movie, all the things that I'm interested in, performance and, and all the things I'm unafraid of, great dynastic dramas <laughs> and things, you know, with kings and queens and stuff, I always loved bringing them back to a sort of human place, was sort of meat and drink for something that had that great Norse myth running through it. And you could bring somebody like Tony Hopkins in. And I remember uh, Kevin saying that, you know, for them it was critically important that they had a film in Thor that, that planted in that MCU the possibility of the fantastical that, that started a world that wasn't just Robert's brilliant Tony Stark contemporary world or, or, or Captain America with the time travel, but something that was generally, ge- genuinely fantastical. So, but they needed to be human. So it was a great place for me to land. And then I got a chance subsequently because some people started to trust me with those big budgets and big, big uh, scale movies to, um, you know, to go into, into other directions. Uh, and, and for me, finding, it's, it's, it's often finding, I, I, I guess, um, it's an interest in the classical. I, I like things that are both contemporary and traditional. They continue to exist because there's something that is connected to something ancient and marvelous, but they still work because they can be totally alive in the here and now. That would apply to something like Cinderella, where the idea of a victim child running through this story was not something that was either acceptable or helpful to send out into the universe, but trying to find somebody who could be empowered by kindness uh, and, and indeed empowered by forgiveness was quite a sort of subversive idea inside a movie like that. And then, of course, I love, I love performance and the celebration of it. And when I first started going to movies in the late 60s with my family, there were big all-star movies that I loved going to see. I didn't know why, because I didn't necessarily know everybody. But when you suddenly put together a gallery of characters like we had in Murder on the Orient Express, um, and there's not only... Agatha Judy Christie. Dench again. Yeah, Judy Dench again. Can't get rid of her. <laughs> yeah. She's cheap. Um, uh, not really. Um, but to, to see her with, with Johnny Depp and Derek Jacobi and Michelle Pfeiffer, that for me in itself is a kind of event. You put them in a great plot by Agatha Christie and it gives you something unusual in the big darkened room experience. At the beginning of career, you were the young Olivier. Then you played Lawrence Olivier mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. My Week with Marilyn. Yeah, yeah. Where... It, it, it's just so strange. And now you're playing Shakespeare. Yeah. This one that you started your career and your film career with. How does that make you feel now at this time in your life? 
there was something very privileged about playing Shakespeare, having worked so much with his uh, material. I feel I owe him a great, a huge, huge, huge debt, not only for a career, but also for a solace and an understanding in a kind of um, instruction, intellectual, moral, philosophical, that these plays sort of present to you. Every time you work on them, you are enlarged by just the consideration of what it takes to be a human being in the small and the large, whether that's teaching you about kindness or it's teaching you about grief or about loss or about gratitude. Um, he's been an, in, in the soul of the man, as at least um, intuited through the plays, for me has been a, a, a constant source of, of, of generous and, and compassionate companionship all the way through my life. So to, to actually try and find a way to bring what I think lies in, in that creative soul to the screen, embody him. That for me, it was a privilege and also something I felt was very sort of precious and I wanted to, uh, I wanted to do my very best with. And you did. So that's pretty great. So Thank you me. know we end this show in song all the time. Okay. What do you want to sing for the Bard of Avon? <laughs> what, is, what is the tribute? Should we do uh, Cole Porter? Should we do a Brush, brush Up, up your, Shakespeare? your Shakespeare? That would be the perfect there one for go. this movie. Excellent. Let's do it. Okay. Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And the women you will wow. We probably can't say that you anymore. You can't. Can. Oh, no, I didn't think. No, you can't because it's old. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. That's the one to do. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. Thank, Thank you. you so much.